Hello, and welcome to the Bite Size Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Shiroki, and today we are going to continue our look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, to be, in the first couple sections, we looked at verses 1 through 8. Today, we're actually going to take three verses. We're going to look at the next three verses, 9 through 11, in which my uh, Spirit-Filled Life New King James Version Study Bible subtitles this, The Judgment Seat of Christ. So it's an interesting um, passage here, a few verses that say a lot. So again, we're going to start with that, and then we're going to branch out. We're going to get into some Romans, some Hebrews. We're going to jump back into the Old Testament, into Deuteronomy. Then we're going to finish up in Luke. So I'm looking forward to... um, We actually may finish up in Revelation, because... Um, there's an amazing event described in, in Revelation, the final judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment, in which Jesus Christ himself will finally judge <laughs> this world and its wickedness. It will judge, he will judge Satan, he will judge all the fallen angels, also known as demons that have just unleashed literally hell on earth since the fall of man. You know, man in this world has been on a steady decline. Um, It's interesting, yesterday as I was reading and studying for this, uh, and I was just reading through Revelation, um, and it's just incredible, the events that are to come. And um, when you really look at the age and time that we live in, you know, it's um, people have been talking about the return of Christ for a long time. He's over 2000 years, you know, seated at the right hand of the father in our time and our space. But what we need to keep in mind is <laughs> um, God's timing and is his timing. And there's a great, great reason why he has allowed the world to exist for the, <laughs> you know, um, if you look back. As you read the New Testament, you can see where Paul and the disciples would, um, the authors of the books, I should say, in the letters, um, they really emphasize that the day of the Lord is at hand. His return is imminent. And they meant that then. And what I don't think we understand or what they may have not have understood is, again, that, um, you know, like the Bible says, a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years is like a day. So, you know, um, I don't, I can't grasp eternity. I can't grasp living outside of our physical world, this time and space that we live in. But um, God's timing is his timing. And if you really look at it, my point was that over the course of that time, I mean, there's been an amazing amount of millions of people, the Gentiles mainly, that have become sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, through salvation, through repentance of their sin, calling on their creator to come and live inside of them and and be part of God's family, to be grafted in, as the Bible says. Um, you know, the original olive tree, the original root is the Lord, is God himself, and then Israel sprung out of that root, God's chosen people. And then when they rejected the Messiah, God made the amazing decision to allow the Gentiles to 
enter into his family and he actually that that picture is a, a picture of grafting which is when you take an old branch from an old tree and basically um, incorporate it into a new tree or structure and that branch becomes part of that permanent structure and that's exactly what God does there's a good reason why he uses those analogies um, today <laughs> I guess since the pandemic for some reason uh, people have really taken up um, <clears throat> gardening and, and um, uh nursery I guess plant nursery if you will so um, maybe people can understand these examples a little better these days kind of kind of cool how God wrote the Bible thousands of years ago and is now um, using very modern things to kind of um, again explain to us how exactly he sees us that being his children that were grafted into his family it's a very unique picture it's very interesting and um there's also um a study i'm going to do soon about the jesus always talked about the you know the, the him being the vine and us being the grapes or the fruit things of that nature and i heard a good sermon this week that kind of touched on that a little bit so i'm going to go back and listen to that and i'm going to do a study on my own and maybe do a few episodes on that i'm also looking forward to getting into i think next after finishing up this look at 2 Corinthians 5, I'm looking forward to looking at and finally delving in a little deeper to Paul. Again, I started looking at that, at um, the the Stephen the Martyr parts 1 and 2, but I ended with wanting to just really look at Paul, you know, Saul from when he was basically converted from Saul, the leader of the Sanhedrin, the persecutor of the church, to Paul, the apostle the um bond servant the slave of jesus christ himself you know a very um you know a man mightily used by god to write a majority of the new testament you know he but it, on top of that the reason why he wrote a majority of the new testament is because paul fully yielded his life to god and fully um took steps of faith ever since he was converted and he had a ministry that spread throughout the known world at the time so you know that um they go hand in hand you know his, his obedience to the to the will of god and, and walking out that purpose also goes hand in hand with his influence in the new testament and and the church and and why his writings are so um, prevalent in the New Testament and it's because of his consistency with who Christ is and again I mean God uses certain people for certain things and Paul was a man mightily used by God so um, without any further ado let's continue our look at 2 Corinthians 5 we're going to look again at verses 9 through 11. Okay and like I said we are going to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, My Spirit-Filled Life, New King James Version Bible, again, subtitles this section, The Judgment Seat of Christ, starting at verse 9 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body 
according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So let's look at the notes here for those sections, and then we'll go from there. So the note for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 in my Spirit-Filled Life, New King James Version Bible says, Therefore, Paul's conclusion is that in view of the confident expectation of seeing Christ and our hope for the resurrection, he desires to be well-pleasing to him. This holds true whether he is present or absent, that is, in the body or out. Four, knowledge of a future accountability for our service is another reason to seek to be well-pleasing to him. The terror of the Lord, the appropriate reverential awe or fear of our creator and judge strengthens our resolve to please Christ ourselves and motivates our attempts to persuade others to trust in Christ. So, very, um, you know, a little bit, uh, you know, a few verses that can, as always, they say a lot. And basically this, um, this judgment in particular, Paul's talking about is to the body and to Christians, you know, this letter is to the church of Corinth. So, um, we were just looking, um, we're studying acts right now on Wednesday nights at the church I go to. And, my pastor just did a small, you know, commentary, if you will, on Corinth. And, you know, if you study that place, it was basically like, um, he used a good term. And that's exa it's exactly what I thought when he was describing it. It's like Las Vegas on steroids. That place was, you know, Sin City to the nth degree, if you will. It was just, I mean, sadly, you know, there was a, um, there was a temple there dedicated to a goddess of basically um, just sex essentially i mean there were a thousand prostitutes a night would go out and um it was just a wicked place you know but i mean it's it goes to show that man's wickedness really doesn't change at all it just you know the technology changes around us we we quote unquote advance what we're advancing towards or progressing towards is nothing but the new world order aka the satanic influence that's going to eventually rule this world which is wickedly coming to for uh fruition right right in front of our eyes right now um it's pretty scary <laughs> there again they're not hiding it they, they throw around terms like new world order um great reset you know a lot of this stuff can be considered conspiracy in some circles but you know, when, when your literal global leaders are throwing these terms out and discussing how they're implementing these things, well, you know, the government used to, you know, keep this stuff under wraps for decades, and then we, they'd release documents and we'd confirm our suspicions, if you will. You know, people say, in the, especially in the ufology world, you know, it's when um, conspiracy becomes fact after the government releases its documents. Well, you know, if you think the government's good, if you think, you know, that they have your best interests in mind, go just research MK Ultra. Okay. Just look at what they did back in the sixties and seventies. And that program today still exists in, in different forms. Um, you know, there's a lot of dark entities and people that are very influential in this world. And, um, the fact that people think 
such people have their best interest in mind. It's just a real, it, it puzzles me to a certain degree when, when, when I, when I see people just so blindly following poor leadership at that, which is the scariest part. I mean, good leadership is, um, you know, it's definable. And what we see in front of us now is poor across the globe, not even just in this country, but I mean, well, the the reasoning being because this country does set the tone though for a majority of the quote unquote free world, which that's quickly becoming a thing of the past. Um, but anyway, um, but point being, there's uh, there's a lot going on right now, and we are going to be held accountable. What Paul's talking about here with the church and this specific judgment is the um judgment of what we've done here on this earth with what god's given us you know god died he resurrected he purchased us he puts that holy spirit in us as the guarantee his down payment for us but i'll tell you just over the past few days you know i've been going through some interesting struggles trials tribulations but tests of my faith if you will but um you know, God, he's always there. Um, you have to really keep perspective and understand what's going on at the time that it's happening because it's easy to get caught up. Again, that's a big difference in spiritual maturity when you just, you can either just get washed away by those things or you can really stand firm on the rock of Jesus Christ, his truth, what he promises, what he says. And you need to look around, you need to get involved, you need to talk to people that share the faith, that have gone through this stuff. You know, that's why we have elders, deacons, mentors, people in Christ that we can hopefully turn to and talk to and discuss these things to learn, to understand, again, to gain perspective as to what's going on. You know, in the in the storms of life, we need to keep our focus on the Lord, you know. Again, I have, I have a, a picture of when Peter when he went out, when, when, you know, there was a storm and, and Jesus appears and, um, you know, t basically Jesus tells Peter, asks Jesus, like always, because Peter was just a character. He, he, great dude, very, um, just, man, he, he, he was a guy I look forward to meeting because he just seems like a, a, a guy who was very, um, he he did first and thought second, put it that way. So anyway, he sees, you know, Jesus on the water and he asks him to come out with him. And the Lord says, all right, Peter, well, come on. Peter actually does take a few steps as he's looking and focused on the Lord. But the minute Peter starts to look around at the storm around him and takes his focus off of the Lord, that's when Peter eventually falls in the water and starts to drown and has to be pulled out. So that's an amazing picture that God gives us of exactly what we go through in the storms of life. When we stay focused on him, even through those storms, even though the winds are whipping, the rain's hitting us in the face, you know, and I describe that as the things that are going on spiritually around us that we don't see or understand. But remember, we do not fight against flesh and blood. We fight against principalities and powers, things of the unseen, but you better believe they're very real and they're there and they, there is a war going on. And especially when you commit your life to Christ, I'm telling you, Satan wants every single soul he can get 
down there with him, as we're going to see a little later in this particular episode, in hell, in that lake of fire. He doesn't, he wants, he, he considers it some kind of sick victory when he can drag people down and deceive them. <laughs> you know, that's one of the most famous sayings ever from one of my former fa- favorite movies, you know, um, Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. He is cunning. Look, he's been doing this a long time. And he, he again, operates in the spiritual realm. So we need to keep that perspective and understanding and realize that when we're going through tests, trials, tribulations, one, we are not alone. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the living word of God that we can open and dive into. And we have the amazing lifeline to God of prayer. Pray, rebuke, you know, fight, struggle, you know. Um, we're going to have our faith tested. We're going to have, you know, those old... that. <laughs> There, there's a there's an old teaching that you know when 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 Satan is driven out of a life you know or a demon or demonic influence is driven out of your life by God, well that's that demon that satanic influence it eventually wants its home back and its home was you and your life so it's going to come back around and again Satan operates in a sick you know way in the spiritual realm in which. He knows where to, he knows those cracks in the dam, as I said a little while back. He knows that although there's a solid fortress there that we, you know, have this salvation in Jesus Christ, he knows where those little spots are to try to poke us and prod us to get us to, you know, basically come back and walk off the pasture, if you will, away from our good shepherd and out into the wilderness where he can attack and you know, God forbid, kill us and uh, take us and drag us down with him, which, of course, you know, that's definitely not anyone's desire. So, all right, let's look at, I'm actually going to look at verse nine again, and then we're going to move on to some notes. But before we do, um, I just want to read, excuse me, verses, actually, Second Corinthians 5, 8 and 9. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. So, again, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, when we die, we are immediately with the Lord, present. How that works, I have no idea. But, hey, it, it's a, <laughs> there's a lot of spiritual things that we just aren't going to understand while we're here. We're never going to fully grasp who God is, you know, again, that the triune Godhead, um, we can live it. We can study the, the word. We can pray. We can spiritually mature, but there's just certain items and certain things that, you know, our physical limitations really put on us to really understand exactly who God is, but, and how all this works, but you know, they're called mysteries of God, but thankfully God doesn't leave us totally in the dark. He has his living word. He has prayer. He has others that we can learn from. So, you know, don't ever um, 
be discouraged and think you're alone in any type of this, uh, any uh, area of life or any time in your life, because, you know, the word is alive. I say that all the time, but, you know, there's a reason why we call it the living word of God, because the Holy Spirit, as he dwells in us, as we read the living word, he speaks to us. So don't ever take that for granted, you know, and pray, ask God to show you what to read, what to look at. And you'd be amazed or what to listen to. And you'd be amazed how God has led me so many times to, to passages, to books where at first I'm like this, what, what am I reading this for? What am I looking at this? Then as you go into it or as you listen to it or as you watch the sermon or listen to a sermon or whatever it might be, then you start the, the Holy Spirit starts to speak. And you, you, it's very humbling the way God can do that for us. But again, it's him showing ultimately his care. Again, I mean, the fact that God would be so intimate and care, look, the creator of all around us, I'm talking the heavens, I'm talking the beautiful earth we live on, I'm talking the beautiful planets that we can observe, this, I mean, the stars, the sun, it's, God's amazing, but the fact that he created all of that and then has the time to just address our personal things like that i mean <laughs> that's really the 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 genius the infinite wisdom of the lord of placing his holy spirit in us so we're never alone so that that's an incredible realization when you can really grasp onto that and um it's essential to grasp onto that because if you don't if we don't then again it's very easy to be deceived it's very easy to have um you know, trials and tribulations turn us into things and people and turn us back to ways that we really don't want to delve into. So let's look at the, um, let's look at a couple of verses that tie into second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. Again, I'll quickly read it for, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We're going to flip back to Romans. We're going to look in chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, where it says, For as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. Looking at the note here for that section of Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, it says, Paul stresses that both Jews and Gentiles are accountable to God for judgment. <clears throat> Excuse me. They differ from each other in that Jews possess the law while Gentiles do not, even though by nature they do some of the things that are stipulated in the law. God has given all people a moral instinct by creation, though repeated sin or cultural acceptance may distort their understanding. The point 
is that people will be judged according to the revelation they have. The standard of judgment for Jews will be the written law. The standard for pagans will be the unwritten law of conscience and nature. So quickly there, that note there is interesting where it says God has given all people a moral instinct by creation, though repeated sin or cultural acceptance may distort their understanding. So um, it's, you know, we live in a world today where sin is openly accepted. It's openly promoted. It's openly, um, you know, it is it is encouraged and it's very sad. But what you can see here is, you know, initially people they do have that conscience, that conscious, I should say, resistance to um, doing what is against the law, what is written in our hearts, what is against God and his ways. But when society, when the world changes its view, changes its laws, or openly promotes things that are directly against God, you can actually, again, Cultural acceptance can distort understanding or just simply repeated sin. So when we talk about the conscience, for example, being seared and people, um, what, what we mean essentially is, you know, when you first, when you first do something wrong, um, you're going to feel like it was wrong. But if you repeatedly do that action over and over, you're eventually going to become numb to that conscience that says, don't do this, or you shouldn't do this. You know, it's, um, that, that's, that small voice gets quieter and quieter to the point of where it's eventually, um, quenched and you do not hear it anymore. I mean, that explains the wickedness of man that explains all the evil we see around us. It's not, it's no mystery as to what is going on around us. It's a, again, it's a spiritual battle and, when initially we have those um, those regrets or we have those um, ill feelings of something we did wrong, if you keep doing it over and over, it's like what we call hardened criminals, if you will, you know, evil people, monsters, things like that. The, the, the details you can hear about some of the horrific crimes and things people have done in the past and, and to this day are just... Uh, you know, you, people, normal, most, most of society would say, how can that happen? How can you do that? But, you know, again, there are people that specifically just had a, a seared conscience to the point of where they were able to do absolutely wicked and abominable things without even thinking twice, because that's just the, the, the nature of the fallen world. And again, um, people will be judged based upon what they do. So the Christians will be judged upon what they did on this earth with the salvation that was given to them. Did we use our lives to push the gospel and promote the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or did we um, just choose to kind of go with the flow and, you know, never really take any stands for the Lord, never really stand up and grow spiritually. I mean, you look around at the church, a lot of the church right now is very spiritually immature because they bought in false gospels, they bought into politics, political movements, whatever it might be, which really quenches the ability to grow because they're relying on worldly wisdom and man instead of getting into the word and letting the Holy Spirit guide them and letting God 
truly um, reveal what to do and, and give them wisdom. So um, part of spiritual maturity is yielding fully to the Lord and acknowledging and recognizing that we don't have any answers. We need him for everything. And, you know, um, a, a great way to find that, uh, many answers is to simply, again, get into the word of God, because this living word will guide you in ways that you will never, ever understand or grasp, but the word will guide our lives if we allow it to. And of course, it's highly rejected these days in the fallen, wicked world we live in. But ironically, there's many other religions and it's almost as if everything's acceptable except authentic Christianity. There's a reason for that. The world hates it, Satan hates it, and the world systems is going to keep gripping and quenching this truth more and more as the days get darker because unfortunately the, it has to get worse before it gets better. And I was having a conversation with my kids this weekend and I, I said that and it just, it hit me. It was sad to say that, but it's a true reality. And I pray for them. I pray for the world. I pray for the good, the bad, and the ugly that they would know the Lord. And, um, all right, let's flip up now, looking at another note here for related to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. We're going to flip up. We're going to stay in Romans. We're going to go up to Romans 14. We're going to look at verses 10 through 13, where it says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, Every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. So, again, there's different levels of accountability here that, that, that addresses, you know, with the Christian, it's basically saying, let's be good brothers and sisters to each other. Let's be the family of God that we're called to be. And the uh, world will be judged based upon their actions, which that's a scary reality because the false teaching of good works or good people go to heaven. It's going to send a lot of people to hell, to put it very plainly, because that's just not reality. That's not God. There's gonna, I've heard it said before, and I totally believe it now because I'm one of them. It's going to be a lot of people in heaven you wouldn't expect to see there and a lot of people in hell that you wouldn't expect to see there. So it's a scary reality. Let's look at the notes here for Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 13. Christians are not ju to judge each other with reference to the practice of more morally neutral issues, since each individual is responsible to God. As Lord, the right of such judgment belongs to Christ. Weak and strong Christians alike shall all stand, not at each other's judgment seats, but before the judgment seat of Christ. That judgment will be based on what we have done in this life. It will not determine whether or not we enter heaven, but will determine degrees of reward in heaven. Paul directs this counsel primarily to the mature urging them to practice self-limitation in exercising their liberty, lest they offend others. 
So again, um, just, you know, the Christians will be judged based upon what we have done in this life. And it's not a judgment in the sense of, um, again, like it said, do we go to heaven or hell? But it's what we did with what God gave us on this earth, basically. Um, now, unsaved, they're going to be judged heaven or hell, and they're going to go to hell because they did not accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. And once you pass over into the other realm, into into eternity, if you will, then you know, it's too late at that point. You know, there's, there's, um, if you don't believe now, you wouldn't even believe then. It's a spiritual principle. It's true. And you, people may think, well, I just need a little more evidence. I just need a little more of this or that. You really don't though. The fact is you're too prideful to acknowledge that you're a sinner, that you're wrong and that God is right. And People fool themselves into thinking that they need to see signs and wonders, if you will. But, you know, Christ warned against that many times in his earthly ministry. And, you know, even the Jews that saw signs and wonders, the very same people that came and followed him by the thousands, eventually were the same people crying for his execution because they were just interested in their essentially their own <laughs> their own interests and they weren't truly um acknowledging or seeing that jesus was the messiah they were looking for so we're going to look now um at the notes for second corinthians chapter 5 um, actually some verses related to chapter 11 where again it says um let me flip up here. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. So let's flip up. We're going to be in Hebrews. We're going to go, we're going to look in chapter 10, verses 30 and 31, where it says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Looking at the notes here, it says, The scriptures testify that God's judgment is certain and absolute. So, um, again, you don't want to be on the wrong side. <laughs> people talk these days about being on the wrong side of history and things like that. Well, I look forward to this history being a, a thing of the past and something that really is never even something that we have to reference back to. I look forward to a new earth, a new Jerusalem, a, a new kingdom of God someday is going to be amazing. It, God is so good. We are going to live with him, dwell with him, and we are going to be with him for all of eternity. It's going to be absolutely amazing no more evil no more corruption i can you know we get glimpses of that here and there on the earth um but it's it's an amazing reality when you really think about it i mean it's funny as the days get darker um i just look forward to that more and more and um I, i'm content here on the earth i really am i i you know i have no fear again whether here or in heaven, 
God is with us. God is in us. So we, we really shouldn't have any type of hesitation or, um, if we do, we really have to examine ourselves. Again, I always talk about submitting your entire life, all of you to God. So it's important to do that. And if you're holding on to things that you know you shouldn't, if you're trying to hide sin, if you will, or, you know, you can fool people all day long, but you're never going to fool God. You're never going to get away from his omnipresence. And he will always seek you because if he wants you, he will get you one way or another. And I mean, in a good way, he will make you his. And the more we fight against that, the more, the higher the temperature gets, if you will. And that's just God eventually wanting us to be in a situation where all we have is him. So, you know, some of us have been been there more than once in life. And that's a, you know, that's where spiritual growth and maturity come in, where when we come to those places down the road where we've been before, those crossroads, if you will, or those forks in the road, we start to make the right decisions because we know the disastrous consequences of making the wrong decisions. So, you know, it's amazing. I can say life gets a lot easier when you just fully yield yourself to him. I don't have all the answers. I don't understand it all. I never will. I will never claim to, but amazingly, God is um, very faithful and um, there's deep truths we can hold on to both in our own lives that he's done personally for us and also through his word. So speaking of his word, we're going to flip back to Deuteronomy. We're actually going to look at chapter 32. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. This is called the song of Moses. And I just, it's an amazing uh, passage here that uh, it's just recorded as a song of Moses. So without any uh, further explanation, let's look at Deuteronomy 32. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, and raindrops on the tender herb, and as showers on the grass. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children because of their blemish, a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in the desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. 
as an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. He made him ride in the heights of the earth, that he might eat the produce of the fields. He made him draw honey from the rock, and oil from the flinty rock, curds from the cattle, and milk of the flock, with fat of lambs, and rams of the breed of Bashan, and goats, with the choicest wheat, and you drank wine, and blood of the grapes. But Jeresharun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him, and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful, and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them, because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts, with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside. There shall be terror within for the young man and virgin, the nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said, I will dash them in pieces. I will make the memory of them to cease from among them. Had I not feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is high. And it is not the Lord who has done all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, nor is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their utter end. How could one chase a thousand, and two put ten thousand to flight, unless their rock had sold them, and the Lord had surrendered them? For their rock is not like our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter.
Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of, of cobras. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up among my treasures? Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things to come hasten upon them. For the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there is no one remaining, bond or free, he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, nor is there any who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives, from the hands of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and render vengeance to the, to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. So Moses came with Joshua, the son of Nun, and spoke all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. Moses finished speaking all these words to Israel, and he said to them, Set your hearts on all the words which I testify among you today, which you shall command your children to be careful to observe, all the words of the law. For it is not a futile thing for you, because it is your life. And by this word you shall prolong your days in the land, which you cross over the Jordan to possess. So that again is the Song of Moses, Deuteronomy, a majority of Deuteronomy chapter 32. We're going to look at that word judge that's used in verse 36. The word is actually dean, D-I-N, dean. It means rule, govern, legislate, judge, strive, plead the cause of someone. Contend with someone, contend for something. The noun derived from this word is translated as plea, judgment, or cause. Dayan is another derivative and means a judge. Finally, from den comes Medina, meaning state, province, or government. It is literally place of judgment or justice. So let's look at the notes here for, again, Deuteronomy chapter 32, where it says, This poetic song was to be learned and repeated by the Israelites as an ongoing witness of their understanding of the covenant. The Lord is described five times in this song as the rock, the essence of stability and reliability. This descriptive title stresses the permanent, unchanging nature of the God of the covenant. Israel is here called Jacob, a common poetic synonym for Israel. Uh, Jeshurun 
is a poetic name for Israel. Israel's ingratitude to God is clearly noted as she grew fat on the bountiful provision of God and kicked, resisting his love and control. Israel abandoned her source of creation and scorned the basis of her salvation. The idol worship of the pagan world is clearly more than superstition. Such worship submits the worshiper to demon power. So, I'm going to stop there with the notes. And you can see, I mean, basically, this entire song is speaking directly to the Israelites. You know, God's chosen people. He, he loves them for a good reason, for promises and covenants he made to his former people. Um, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Moses, you know, th these are people that God not only promised, but also used as men of example so that the Israelites and the Jews could see when you fully devote yourself to the Lord, that he will always carry you through the good and bad times in life, essentially. But when you turn away, when you or when you um, take God's provision and his blessings for granted, then and you close your ears and you think you know sort of like modern day you know god blesses us in different ways and then you know we become um we uh tend to um think that we can sort of say to the lord oh well we i got this now i i got this but we foolishly forget that the reason we're in that position to begin with is because of god's provision and love for us so Again, spiritual maturity is recognizing these things and recognizing that without God, we are nothing. <laughs> we are going to become like, if you look at the Old Testament, I mean, a lot of, especially the Torah and a lot of the, a lot of the Old Testament, though, the, the valuable lesson here is it's God correcting his people. It's God, you know, the Israelites being, you know, broken and then coming back to the Lord, broken, coming back to the Lord. And it's a repeated cycle. And look. It's almost like human nature, I guess, that, that we just want to, we want to be our own gods in a sense. I mean, I, I, I kind of had this um, just thought a while back where if God made us in his own image, I mean, it's easy to fall under idolatry of ourselves in a sense. I mean, in today's world, people are so in love with them, with themselves, it's, it's, crazy but you know it, it's also a spiritual principle in the sense that again if we are made in the image of god then it's easy to idolize ourselves and other people um in a spiritual sense it's, it's a bit of a mystery but if you get what i'm saying there then um you know it's 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 an interesting observation if you will so if you understand it too it's easier to avoid it because when we have understanding of things and spiritual truths then we can avoid them that much easier so you know don't ever take god's blessing for granted don't ever take his you know provision for granted because um you know again the ultimate um importance in life is relying on our rock for everything and realizing that we can do nothing apart from him no matter what our position is in life um you know we've seen many people come and go so i'll just say that so um let's flip up now to luke we're going to be in chapter 12 we're going to look at verses 4 through 7 again 
how this this ties into um second corinthians chapter 5 verse 11 where it's talking about basically the judgment of christ and how he's going to operate and um what he's going to do in the future in a sense of how he's going to judge his people and judge the world separately in a certain regard so let's look again in act or excuse me luke chapter 12 verses 4 through 7 this is Jesus speaking, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And not five sparrows sold, excuse me, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Looking at the notes here for that. Disciples are not to fear their enemies, whose judgment is merely physical or temporal. They are to reverence God, whose judgment is final and of eternal consequence. Fearing God involves trust, not terror. Nothing that happens to his witnesses, not even death, takes place apart from the providential care of the one who is concerned with the smallest details of life. So, again, Jesus speaking there, it's a very profound truth and lesson to um, us as believers to not fear man. Don't fear their judgment. Don't fear what they do. Don't fear the fact that, yes, they can kill you, but ultimately God is the one who can not only kill the body, but also the soul when it's, when you're sent to hell. So, you know, it's not a fear per se. Thank God we don't walk around trembling like, like, you know, that's the misconception of many that, you know, people are, are scared of hell. So they love the Lord. That's not it. That or maybe that's a lot of religious people's, um, you know, uh, um, understanding and purpose for serving God. But anybody who truly is a saved Christian knows that we don't walk around in fear, We, but we definitely reverence God. We have a reverence for him, acknowledging that he is the the ultimate. He is the I am. He is the, he is the one who has the final say. And having that reality um, is something that keeps us walking in faith and coming back to him. You know, it's, ama it's an amazing dynamic, but I mean, the, ultimately the love of God is what outshines all of that because that's what pulls us to him, his grace, his care, and that's what he fills us with, his Holy Spirit, so that we can share that love and that grace with others. And he uses us in whatever way he will in, in life. So it's um pretty incredible stuff that, you know, again, we don't walk around shaking and trembling, but we walk around acknowledging that God is the, he has the final say. So it's just better to be his friend than his enemy is what we all learn, I guess, to sum it up pretty, pretty nicely. We're actually going to finish in Revelation. We're going to be in chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 that really addresses that final judgment I mentioned earlier. This sub this uh, passage is subtitled The Great White Throne Judgment in my Spirit Filled Luck New King James Version Bible. 
again, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, where it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So quickly looking at the notes for that section. History has ended. The only final judgment is left to complete the drama of the redemption. The final judgment is concerned with the spiritually dead, not the saints. The book of life was opened to reveal that the names of the dead do not appear in it. The last enemy to be destroyed is death in Hades the temporary abode of the dead until the final judgment. They are ultimately as powerless as the other forces of evil. The judgment closes the millennial period and opens the age to come. It is the greatest of all judgments because it encompasses all the wicked from the beginning of man's history. Jesus Christ is the one sitting on the great white throne, fulfilling John chapter 522. Those who are judged are lost because they refused God's salvation in Christ by grace through faith. Their doom is the second death. So I wanted to look at that because, again, um, this is addressing the judgment of the unsaved. This is talking about the judgment of those who rejected Christ, his gospel, and they thought that they were going to be quote-unquote good people or were that they were going to work their way into heaven as you can see again we're saved by faith we're saved by grace we're saved by nothing we do and everything jesus christ did on the cross we simply accept that free gift of salvation and recognize that jesus christ is lord and we recognize that we're sinners that need to be saved we acknowledge that and he simply ask and we receive from God with a, you know, with a right heart that we truly mean what we're saying. Um, but this portion here, this great white throne judgment, as you can see, um, God opens the book of life to be fair, to say, look, you had your opportunity and your name is not written here. Therefore, he judges them based on their works based on exactly what they wanted them to be judged on. And that's not, God does not judge or allow people into heaven based on anything we do, because no matter what, we can never get away from that sin nature. You know, some of the very um, nicest, you know, great people out in public could be very wicked and evil, you know, in, um, in private and we have examples of that across the board there's a certain person i can think of in hollywood a few years ago that she was miss happy-go-lucky on her daily talk show but behind the scenes she was an absolutely evil wicked person and um you know didn't surprise me in the least bit but at the same time um 
the world was shocked for some reason. You know, it's like how many examples, how many times do do we need to see the same same old thing happening over and over? Because you know, when it comes down to it, people aren't good by nature. We're evil. We're, we, we have a wickedness to us because of our sin nature that we're born into. But God came. He sent his son. Jesus Christ came in the form of a man. And he was ultimately perfectly obedient. He obeyed. He fulfilled every element of the law. He never sinned. He was the spotless, perfect lamb. And then he was our ultimate sacrifice, shedding his blood on Calvary, taking the punishment we all deserve for our sins upon himself. All of the wickedness of the world was poured out upon him at that time. That is the cup he spoke of when he asked God the Father, if this cup can pass for me, let it be. And of course it did not because that was not the father's plan. The father's plan was to allow his son to be our substitute lamb, to endure the judgment and wrath that we all deserve because of our wickedness. He allowed it to be poured on him so that we could be saved from death and Hades, from destruction and from that second death, hell that second death, the ultimate destruction. That's something that, you know, no one, I pray no one I know ever faces. I pray that people acknowledge and recognize this truth. I pray that they have ears to hear, eyes to see, open hearts. So that's going to conclude our look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. We will um, finish up probably, I don't know if next episode we're going to get through all of chapter 5. I think we will. I'm going to keep it relatively simple, hopefully. might be a two-parter, but the next episode we'll get a finish up, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then we will move on to our look at Paul. Again, introduced as Saul, but later known as Paul the Apostle. That's going to be a fun look and something uh, I'm looking forward to diving into. So God bless and have a great day.